Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Okay, so welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And I'm very privileged to be uh, joined today by Professor Alan Lester, who's a professor of historical geography at Sussex University. Um, and uh, we're here really to talk about the, 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 the question of current debates around empire uh, and how, uh, how we have that conversation during a period of, of what you could call culture war. Um, which again is uh, an over, a sort of an oft-used term that I think has become almost sort of slightly, slightly kind of mythologized in, in, in certain ways. The, I mean, these sort of strange, overused um, terminologies. But anyway, firstly, welcome, um, Alan. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, and um, perhaps we can begin. Uh, you're, you're you're currently or you know, in the in the near future going to be running a, a workshop, aren't you? On um, on culture wars and and um the, the the sort of the the understanding of empire perhaps you can tell us a, a bit about that yeah so, well, thank you very much for having me in the first place nick it's a, a real pleasure and i'm flattered to be here talking to you um yeah i'm i'm running a a, a summer school we're calling it uh at sussex university where i, I work um on the 22nd uh, of august um and it's called how to talk about the british colonialism in the middle of a culture war um and the a few years ago, I would never have dreamed of holding such a summer school and inventing such a title. Uh, but the the background to it is that um, my area of, of specialism, I've been working for over thirty years now on aspects of British colonialism as a you know professional academic, uh, mostly nineteenth century. Um, largely, uh, as far as sort of public popular history is concerned, a relative backwater um, until really the um, First of all, the Roads Must Fall campaign uh, of uh, anti-racist activists spread from University of Cape Town to Oxford University. And there was a mm-hmm. controversy 
over the statue of Rhodes above the entrance to Oriel College in Oxford. That was 2015. Uh, and then uh, 2020, the Black Lives Matter protests in right. the wake of the murder of George Floyd yes. in the US. Um, and those things started to um, render the, the record of British colonialism, the history of British colonialism, mm-hmm. uh, uh, something of uh, a major public controversy, um, mm-hmm. you know, a kind that, it, it, that was unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Um and the reason really for that, uh, well, two things I think were happening. One was that uh, Black Lives Matter activists were drawing attention to the un- often unspoken, uh, hidden histories of colonialism. Yeah. Uh, when they targeted the statue of Edward Colston, mm-hmm. um, known as a philanthropist in Bristol, but mm-hmm. known to others as a man who made he- his fortune through the slave trade, they were drawing our attention to aspects of Britain's colonial past, which are often unspoken, often sort of buried, mm-hmm. uh, and drawing attention to, to the legacies of the kind of racial views, the racial exploitation uh, upon which so much of British colonial activity depended. Mm-hmm. And I think what happened immediately was a, a backlash uh, against that very act of drawing attention mm-hmm. to this history, this largely sort of obscured, um, uh, unadmitted history. Um, and that backlash took the form of of culture war. Um, mm-hmm. So to go, we have to go back a bit, a, a little, I think, to to understand how culture war was already a kind of a political mechanism, a political apparatus um, upon which uh, some, not not by by no means all, but some conservative elements seized uh, in this backlash against Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you know culture war was a phenomenon. Really, was first written about in the context of 1960s America, USA. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it was it was largely a term to describe a kind of constellation of uh, conservative and, and often religious groups, um, both uh, Christian and Jewish largely, um, who objected to the, the social changes that were occurring in, in the USA during the 60s, mm-hmm. uh, um, a greater secularization of society, uh, civil rights movement, and feminist movement mm-hmm. uh, were the main sort of targets. Um, and what you began to see in the sixties in America was these conservative groups defining all of this this range of sort of progressive social change as a dangerous, threatening form of of liberalism, yes. um, which destabilize American society. You know, traditional, yes largely white uh, American society. Yes, you can uh, see, so in, of, I was going to say, there's a point, isn't there, probably about 1966, 67, when you have people like um, William F. Buckley and people like that, who are very, I mean, and that when you see, you read what they say, they're very explicit. Um, uh, you know, it, 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 the, the, they're very conscious of um, fighting some kind of campaign um to sort of save america or save that the version of america that they they, they wish to exist yeah yes. absolutely and people are, are crucial in sort of defining uh what's now known as as the woke uh as, as some kind of um you know almost a anonymous existential threat to the nation yeah. rather than just disparate groups of people who are fighting for different kinds of reform they're, they're kind of lumped together to become uh, it's us or them existential threat and you can't compromise with them um you can't debate with them you know they they threaten to undermine the very basis of your existence and so mm-hmm. they have to be 
dismissed um and woke is the term that's currently used for this this kind of uh, threat um by the right-wing press here in particular who are helping elements within the, the current conservative government to sponsor this this culture war um and i think that that uh culture war approach to politics was um really deepened in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis the, the mm-hmm. banking crisis uh, which saw a great polarization um, of, of wealth and, and opportunity, yeah, and which enabled some fairly narcissistic politicians, <laughs> Trump on one side of the the Atlantic, and I think Boris Johnson mm-hmm. on this side too, to to see an opportunity uh, of mobilizing uh, a base which was anti woke and which uh, mm-hmm. which was fueled by this kind of sense of a, a binary division in politics between the liberal in in America, the woke here, mm-hmm. uh, and sort of traditional values of, of conservatives. Um and which uh started to to mobilize a kind of culture war rhetoric of, mm-hmm. of this woke otherness. Um and that that was already sort of underway um I think when when Black Lives Matter occurred. Uh, and after the the toppling of Colson's statue, you see that that kind of anti woke rhetoric being wielded mm-hmm. um, against the the protesters who toppled Colson's statue. And you know the, the reaction from Boris Johnson's government was immediate. Um, you know his ministers were talking about um, trashing Britain's past, stopping the woke from trashing Britain's past, protecting statues from these woke militant mobs. Mm-hmm. Um, if only one statue that was actually actually toppled um and all of this was happening uh at a, a time when um i was sort of out of normal academic circulation i was in hospital having a, a liver transplant at the time and i was thinking well this this is relating to work that i've done over the last 30 years you know i, I know a bit about the british empire mm-hmm. um and i just didn't recognize that empire from the kind of conservative narratives of of defense of britishness these kind of hyper-nationalist narratives mm-hmm. that were suddenly being popularized again and uh i thought well i'll use this opportunity when i'm out of sort of normal academic research and i can't go into the archives and do things to kind of wield what knowledge i have accumulated over the last 30 years to to try to um uh, give a more sort of academically nuanced a more rigorous a more truthful account mm-hmm. um to, to combat some of the the most egregious misrepresentations of, of Britain's past. Um, mm-hmm. I wrote a book called Deny and Disavow, um, mm-hmm. largely while I was in hospital, which, which tried to address the way in which uh, the imperial past was being distorted uh, as part of this backlash against uh, anti-racist movements. Um, and all the time that I was writing, I was having to continue to update it because the the kind of assault, the cultural assault was, was ongoing. Yes. Uh, and manifest- various ways which we can maybe talk a little bit more about yeah but a long-winded way of saying basically that this this workshop um that i'm putting on the summer school is designed to help an increasing number of people i think who uh feel uncertain and a bit insecure mm-hmm. uh about aspects of their job when it may involve talking about the colonial past so i'm thinking of heritage professionals mm-hmm. uh, people from body national trust which has been a particular target yeah culture um, English heritage, uh, some journalists, um, school teachers as well, mm. who like to be able to teach more about colonialism. Uh, you know, still a, a relatively neglected area. Yeah. Curriculum. 
but who are wary of what can be said and what can't be said on the on the basis of evidence mm. um, and, and you know would would like to to hear from someone who's dedicated their career to mm. to understand this stuff so that's where it came from yeah. for um for listeners um internationally and probably i think probably about two-thirds of the people that listen to this podcast aren't aren't in the uk uh, perhaps it would be useful just to talk a bit about the uh, the issues between um, reclaim history. Uh, this this group of kind of reactionary historians that has, has formed itself, and and the the National Trust. There might even be people listening who aren't really aware of what the National Trust is. But this has been a kind of a key battleground, hasn't it, in the in the last few years? Yeah, there's two overlapping. Um lobby groups now actually both registered as private companies um who have relatively obscure sort of funding a lot of people think that they are funded through a kind of network of right-wing lobbying groups based around an, an address in london called 55 tufton street where a number of think tanks uh, very conservative nationalistic think tanks are based and funded by conservative leaning millionaires businessmen of various kinds two of these uh, groups were formed uh, in the the wake of black lives matter um, one was called history reclaimed which is largely a website which draws together uh, purportedly historians um trying to combat the revision of, of imperial and colonial history, trying to prevent the uncovering of obscured histories of British colonial racism, British colonial mm -hmm. violence, British colonial oppression. So they're, they're trying to put a lid on what can be said uh, about those things and dismissing any work by activists and historians, professional historians, which draws attention to these more challenging aspects of Britain's past. Uh, they're trying to combat that by dismissing it as part of a woke conspiracy you know um uh, an unrealistic approach to history condemning it as postmodern marxism so various lines of attack essentially to try to defend uh, a much older um understanding of empire generated as, as imperial propaganda in britain basically mm -hmm. from the, the 19th century onwards that, that empire was justified that it was part of a civilizing mission that it did more good than harm that we need to see it in a kind of balanced cheap way where okay there were some atrocities there was some oppression but overall it did the world a favor it's all those kinds of narratives that they want to cling on to even in the face of um, verifiable historical evidence mm -hmm. uh, about the exploitation violence that was actually involved in colonialism yeah. so history reclaims is a kind of website which which upholds that more traditional version of the past and tries to combat revisions of it then there's uh, an overlapping group, overlapping in terms of membership and probably funding, although we don't really know, it's all very shady and obscured, uh, called Restore Trust. And Restore Trust specifically targets the National Trust. Um, and this is uh, a, a body you know, often seen in the past as a very sort of conservative body, um, which protects and preserves um, heritage, mm -hmm. largely um, uh, rural countryside, uh, but also stately homes, manor houses, uh, many of its properties belonged to um, members of the British elite um, through, through modern history. Um, and the reason the National Trust has come in for criticism is that it commissioned a, a report um, which was led uh, by a professor from Leicester, Corinne Fowler, uh, into to find out more, basically just to find out more empirically about what role um, colonial wealth and wealth derived from slavery had played uh, in the um, development of its properties. Uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, and the report was quite empirically based. It was quite factual, quite neutral in its tone. Um, and you can go through it. It's online. You can find house by house, property by property. If there was any role, and about a third of the, the properties were identified as having some kind of connection to the colonial past, mm-hmm. um, their ownership through their funding and so on. And you can go through and see what those connections were. Um, but as the report was published, it immediately became the target for this kind of uh, politicised culture war attack on so-called wokery. And the National Trust was condemned for selling out to uh, wokery. Um, and it's uh, the author of the report, Korean Fowler, came in for quite a lot of abuse, uh, including threats after the Daily Mail in particular um, initiated a campaign um, against the, the report. Um, Restore Trust was founded by some disaffected members and people who weren't members, but who joined specifically to back Restore Trust. Mm-hmm. Um, twice now it has tried to get its own candidates elected to the National Trust Council so that they can prevent the National Trust from doing any more of this work of, of heritage interpretation uh, and prevent it informing visitors, members and the public um, more about the role of colonialism and slavery uh, in its properties development. So they don't object to the National Trust um, highlighting stories of the the oppression of English rural workers or the working classes. Um, They don't object to uh, historical narratives about how the architecture was developed or the landscapes were gardened or uh, landscapes were um, planned. Uh, Don't object to histories of the furniture and the tapestries and so on. But what they do object to is anything which draws attention to colonial racial exploitation Mm -hmm. and slavery. Yeah. and, and they've got a lot of backing, as um, History Reclaimed has, in Parliament, among the more right-wing, Brexiteering, conservative members of Parliament, a group called the Common Sense Group of MPs, mm. um, which, which we could come back to maybe later, uh, and a lot of backing in the right-wing press. So the, the Daily Telegraph uh, and its former editor, Charles Moore, are particular backers mm. uh, of both groups, uh, the Mail and the Express, and also the Spectator magazine. These tend to be the main mouthpieces. So they're well-resourced, seem to be relatively well-funded. Um, they have a very prominent national platform, uh, and yet the irony is that they claim to have been silenced or cancelled by you know, woke culture. Well, here, here you have it. There's this a sort of assumption... The, the whole kind of basis of culture war seems to be about the appropriation of victimhood normally by the more powerful side of the argument or the, the more the more powerful group anyway um and the idea that uh firstly you know we are being you know we're being persecuted it's so there's almost something sort of stalinist happening here about us being being silenced one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. 
And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You know, un- unless you have carte blanche to say things which are, you know, ahistorical or untrue, then there's some kind of sinister force si- silencing you. But also there is this, and, and I think this is almost like a more Fox News type thing. There's this kind of um, or, almost sort of... Um, conspiracy theory level uh paranoia that the very foundations of who we are as a people are about to be wiped out by some kind of left left-wing academics and journalists and people that read a bit of adorno at university and, and that that kind of thing uh, and and of of course it's it's like you know ridiculous um, but there is obviously always a little bit of buy-in from certain people, you know, certain, certain members of the of the public who I, you know, perhaps know know nothing else about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I, I one of my things that I have wondered is this: uh, there's this idea, and it's obviously it's a fallacy, and you, you you know anyone that's done kind of an introductory to historical methods on a, a BA. Uh, um, course at university would know this the idea that history is a kind of like a settled matter that you know we've we've had a look at the past and you know some various clever Victorians wrote some books and it's all it's all done we don't need to kind of go back there and you have some of the most you know some really eminent names uh, in um, kind of uh, modern academic and popular British history writing essentially saying this uh, and saying, you know, new things we think about slavery or new things we think about colonialism, um, we should, shouldn't be entertained, which to me sounds like, you know, the worst abrogation of, of academic kind of ethics and responsibilities, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's, uh, there's a number of things going on. There's shifts in historiography, um, which nationalists tend to find disturbing not just in britain but everywhere you know challenges to to national myths Uh, and nationalists always have myths that that their nation has behaved honorably by and large in in the past Mm. um and are over the last sort of few decades the historiography has been shifting away from the justifications the self-justifications for empire that tended to characterize much british history writing about empire um, uh, and you know, history emerged as a as a profession in the late nineteenth century with with people writing about why the empire should matter more to Britons. I'm thinking of Seeley here, for instance, um, and people like Froude writing about um, how uh, English people needed to think much more seriously about the colonising project and about creating mm-hmm. an Anglo-Saxon world and the virtue of doing so. So these were justificatory explanations of empire, analyses of empire, and even advocacy for empire mm-hmm. uh, and that was the sort of beginnings of uh, the historiography of empire in britain 
Um, and even through to the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, most British historians of empire were concerned with questions about how Britain came to acquire such a large empire, uh, how they managed to administer it, mm-hmm. um, and what was eventually lost. Uh, they weren't concerned with questions of how empire was experienced from the other side. As it no. Were. Uh, and, and they weren't concerned with... Um, transformations of the the globe and of culture and of politics around the world that empire saw to um and it was really from the sort of 70s 80s 90s onwards that the historiography began to shift not least because of uh of post-colonial um critics and writers people like Edward Said yeah uh, Palestinian origin um Homi Baba Gayatri Spivak from India, starting to write about other ways of looking at the empire, yeah. not just the sort of justificatory ways from, from the ruler's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had people like Eric Williams, um, you know, the first prime minister of Trinidad and Tobago, a, a black man writing history back to Britain and saying how uh, slavery had been one of the bases of Britain's industrial revolution, you know, the extraction mm-hmm. of wealth through uh, and subsequently, quite a lot of work has been done, particularly at the UCL, Legacies of British Slavery Centre, which has vindicated much, not all, but much of what Williams was arguing, that you know the wealth extracted from slave ownership um, did play a role, a quite significant role, in, mm-hmm. in jump-starting industrialization in Britain. So you had this sort of beginnings of a, um, a new historiography, a much more holistic, much more complete one. And as you say, historians never rest. They're always looking for new interpretations. Mm-hmm. You know, as a professional historian, you're going to get a book published unless it says something new in, in yeah. the eyes of its reviews. So history is not just never a static subject. No. And the fact that you have this wealth of, of approaches, of insights, of, of subjects uh, to do with the, the transformations that empire brought, nationalists find unsettling. Um, mm. It's unsettling to hear that your, your ancestors... Um, you know, went through an industrial revolution, not solely because of British genius or because there was coal under the ground or iron ore under the ground in Britain, but partly through their quite barbaric exploitation of millions of people um, in the the slave trade and slave ownership in the Caribbean. Uh, That's not a sort of flattering and comforting narrative for a nationalist to hear. So a lot of this this backlash comes from that. And it's that, that narrative coming under threat that um that 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 generates a you know a lot of anger i suppose um you have you mentioned that that kind of period of historiography where the question was how did the empire grow and how was it administered and that the way that perhaps it would would have been taught in schools in the 1960s or 70s was wow that was pretty clever of us you know didn't we we create this thing and you know, through a combination of weakness and folly, we let it let it go, and 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 here we are, and that's the kind of the mental map for. Um, there's probably a generation now, I would imagine, in their fifties and sixties. Their mental map is kind of that thing they were taught of. Oh, you know, as far as I'm aware, we did this amazing thing. We had this the biggest empire in the world, and and there was that also that question of British ingenuity of you know Brunel, and you know here I am in I talking to you from South Wales, where the, the, the coal flu came down from the valleys into the ships in Cardiff and around the world. And the, 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 our industrial past and, our you know, was our world power status not the product of just 
good old ingenuity and cleverness? And the answer is, well, it's not it's not not the product of that, but there is a whole other side to things as well. Um, and and this, you know, the 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 great argument that uh, kind of advocates for British imperialism put forward is, well, we weren't the Belgians, you know, we weren't King Leopold. Uh, we we didn't do what the Germans did in to the Herero people, but there's a small question of things like what happened in Tasmania um, and you know a, a variety of other things. Um, so there is so I, I guess this 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 battle to defend the memory of the empire, the, the, the a positive version of the memory of the empire, really is is about how generations of british people have seen themselves yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's been psychologists on um how people respond when the narratives that they've kind of internalized and which mean a lot to them in terms of their personal identity are challenged um and you know, one of the findings is that this deflection is what about is a very common uh, and appealing initial response, an immediate response. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you were told that um, it was Britons in the past who were responsible for the genocide of uh, Aboriginal Tasmanians, you immediately deflect to the Herero and what the Germans did. Uh, or if you're told that Britain was the... Um, uh, refined the transatlantic slave trade you know the, the shipping of, of in britain's case three million but in total about 12 million people from one continent to another which completely transformed both continents and created much of the basis for modernity if you're you're told that the response is well the romans had slaves or the barbary pirates captured european slaves yeah uh, and you, know, you can get drawn into these rabbit holes of as i've done on twitter a number of times oh, pointing yeah. out how these episodes are different um uh, or you can just say yes that's true but let's come back to what we were talking about uh, which was british imperial history yeah. um i think the first thing is to recognize that it is a deflection tactic um i mean david olasuga you know probably the most prominent black historian has, has talked about how whenever he tries to talk about uh, hidden histories of Britain or histories which should be better known. Um, what about her is the first response, and it, it is a deflection yeah. technique. So, yeah. kind of, you know, psychologically comforting technique. And I think, um, you know, as someone myself, I was I was brought up to um, hold these national myths quite dearly. I'm still proud to be British, you know, despite all I know about the the exploitation of the past. It doesn't undermine the, the fact that. Uh, I'm, I'm British and uh, I have no problem with, with that identity. It's, it's not anti-British to know this stuff. No. Um, but uh, I, as someone you know, who was raised with these kind of uh, these myths and ideas and watched all the Imperial Nostalgia films, it was Zulu that first got me interested in Empire. I can understand those kind of immediate psychological reactions. You know, the, mm -hmm. you, you feel confronted, you feel challenged. Um, but I think there's something else going on as well. Uh, you, I think you hinted earlier at the distinction between those who are actively promoting these kind of culture war denials and justifications and mitigations for what went on in the colonial past and those who most of us simply haven't been taught about the imperial past we, we don't know much about it and so we're sort of susceptible to to some of these denials and I, I think there's another thing we need to to understand in terms of where these 
dinars are coming from, where they're being platformed in the mm-hmm. Russian press and on Conservative MPs. There's also a kind of short-term electoral politics at play here. Uh, it's not just the deeper emotional triggers that are, are being here. Um, there's the uh, a certain faction, the Brexiteerian faction of the Conservative Party, who think that culture war is the best means of retaining the so-called Red Wall seats. Mm-hmm. Um, so if Again, outside of Britain, in um, the last general election in 2019, the Conservative Party um, did very well in former Labour supporting mostly Midlands and Northern constituencies uh, on the basis of Brexit. And the slogan was get Brexit done because the majority of people in those seats had voted for Brexit. And uh, Boris Johnson and the, the sort of extreme patriotic fringe of the party promised that they would get Brexit done and that they would what's called level up so bring more investment to these communities mm. both of those things have failed to help brexit has been detrimental to economic development um rather than promoting of it there's been no uh investment really to speak of in, in leveling up and so culture war sort of mobilizing people around their patriotism and around this idea mm. that the woke left is threatening Britishness by trashing our past, you know, mm. and besmirching our heroes, undermining our national identity. There is a, a clear electoral politics behind that yeah. too. I wonder so if that actually, just... you could actually almost trace that back to 2008 when the the kind of the model of economics that had been dominant since Margaret Thatcher uh, and had been embraced basically by both parties blew up Um probably never to kind of fully function again as, as as it had done. And so the Conservatives who were on the ascendancy at, at that moment um, knew that really they have austerity to offer, which isn't a particularly attractive thing to anybody. But there were voices within the party saying, well, you know, if, if we can't trade on economics any longer, you know, all, all we have is sort of reduced expectations, perhaps culture and identity are the ways you win elections now and arguably yeah you're absolutely right and i've been explicit about it this isn't just sort of conjecture on our our part uh so i mentioned before there's a group of over 50 conservative mps who called themselves the common sense group and who actually published a, a manifesto and in that manifesto one of the chapters is entitled turning the red wall blue for years to come or some such title Uh, And they're very explicit there that social conservatism, um, anti-wokery, basically, is the the most appealing electoral tactic that is left after Brexit. Um, And there's there's varying sort of contributions to this this group, but some of it is pretty scarily radical, you know, in in terms of its right-wing approach. Uh, Leaving the European Convention on Human Rights was part of that immediately, even before the boat crisis in Miranda and so on. We were talking about that. And yeah. talking about a new social contract, um, using some of the terminology that um, fascists used in the 1930s about a, a revival, a national revival and reawakening. Yeah. Um, so that there is this kind of a, a agenda, which I think partly explains the the very prominent and well-funded platforms that are, mm-hmm. are carrying this stuff, some very well-connected people behind it. Um, but it's, it's an interaction between that sort of uh, driven politics and... Yeah people's general predisposition to to want comforting narratives about the past which which makes them susceptible to the these ideas i think 
Yeah. Well, there we must leave things, Alan. Um, it's been a, a pleasure to chat with you today, and I do hope we can continue this conversation at some point in the future. Um, all the very best with the workshop. It sounds like it's going to be really, really important stuff um, that you're disseminating beyond academia and towards uh, the folks that are going to be, you know, fighting those culture battles for a long time to come. So thanks so much. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, we'll uh, hopefully speak again. Take good care. Yeah, thanks very much, Nick. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.